1: Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet.
0: Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. What a champion becomes
2: a legend. McCarty Debra won it. Perkins
0: goes in first. What a legend. What a champion.
2: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives.
0: And it's great to have you with us for the second instalment of our special feature episode with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs President for Tobin Brothers Funerals. This is your sporting life last week. We covered a lot of ground with Peter. We spoke about the saving of the club, some of the great names around the club as well. In this edition, of course, we talk about that famous day in 2016, and a lot more with the Western Bulldogs' president. He's only kicked seven goals in his short career. If he makes it eight here, this will bring the house down. Zane Cording! Oh. Listen to that for a roar on grand final day at the MCG. We've spoken about the fact that there are two stints at the helm, 2012. You've already explained your reasons why you came back in 2012, but the club was about to face a, a difficult period, Um the coach was going to go, the captain was going to go, not too far down the track. It was crisis time again in the eyes of a lot of people.
1: It's funny, I um, uh, was was negotiated with, I guess, by a lot of people at the club, leading leading it with David Smorgan who really wanted wanted me to uh, take the job uh, back on. And I nearly said no. In fact, I did say no to him and to Simon Garlick, who was the CEO uh, at the time, and to Chris Grant, mainly because... Um, I had for the past two or three years been doing a, a class action for people with thalidomide birth defects, which was a fifty-year-old birth defect uh, drug, and I'd become really passionate about it, and really I'd started up Gordon Legal just to do that case, um, and I felt like it was a year away, so I I put him off, but he was pretty persistent, David, and and got me into doing it. One of the reservations that I had about it was it I um been at the helm when two coaches were replaced, one of them was, was Terry who I sacked uh, Terry Wheeler and um, then there was Alan Joyce standing down in um, uh, in 1996 and Terry Wallace uh, taking over and, and that knocked me around a lot so in a, a lot of my discussions with both Simon Garlic and Chris Grant, I, I was honest with them and said I, I really don't want to be in that sort of position again and they both said to me, look Unlike those times, you've got us there and and we have um, extensive experience in football and we're happy to take up that part of it. And so that seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, 18 months into it, of course, in the second half of 2014, there emerged um, dramatically at the end of the season Uh, for us problems between uh, then-Captain Ryan Griffin and Brendan McCartney. And as it turned out, those problems uh, had started to emerge in mid twenty twenty fourteen, and I was kind of, um, I guess, talking to both Chris and Simon about about that as, as events unfolded, and I guess I eventually got to to the point as as that was going on, and particularly after you know Ryan Griffin announced that he was leaving, and the club was sort of plunged into that sort of crisis of of thinking to myself. There's a decision to be made about about the coach here. There's a decision to be made about the football department, and it's not something where I can say, "Well, you know what? I'm going to be president for everything except this." Um, if, you, if you're in, you've got to be all in, um, and so I reluctantly put myself into that into that situation again, and um, uh, we navigated that that outcome. Um, Brendan left. Went off to become an assistant coach at um, Melbourne, and we were left at the end of 2014 with no captain and, and no coach. And it, it it seems odd that it was less than two years later that we won the premiership. Mm. Um, but it was a it was a really difficult it was a really difficult period. I remember that um, Rob Murphy I think was in Bali with his wife Justine with a few other people. We we only got a chance to to talk about it. About about the events when he got back, we went for a we went for a long walk, and he was sort of expressing his disbelief. You know, he, he, there were some internet problems with. He, he read something about Ryan Griffin. He, he read enough to know that you know, it was bad news, but um, and he was he was sort of recounting all of that. And then as we sort of got about a mile from my place, I, I said to him, "I just, I just want to understand how come your names never come up in terms of captaincy before." And he said. Well, look, the truth of it is, it's kind of never emerged because, at the time, I, at every time I've been at the club, they've always been great captains. When I was first um, at the club, Scott Wine was was captain. He's one of the great captains of all time. And then, of course, after him, uh, there was Chris Grant and Chris Grant's you know, great leader. And then you know Brad Johnson and um, and then Matthew Boyd and and then you know. Uh Macca just announced to us that Ryan Griffin was taking over the 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 captaincy. So it's not as if I've ever had a discussion with anyone like I'm having this discussion with you now. But now that we are having this conversation, let me just make it clear. I really want it now, and I think that I am the person that that needs to do this job. And I'm not saying it on my own account. I'm saying it because that's what the club needs. The club at this stage needs me to be captain. Did that surprise you when he came out and said that? Look, I really wanted him to be captain. I think it's it, it was It wasn't a complex decision. <laughs> it seemed to me like um um happy to take credit for for supporting it but it wasn't as you know i i I think that Dale Morris was a perfectly plausible candidate for it but but with due respect to was to me, Murph was the obvious uh candidate. What did surprise me was he'd actually been in my in my lounge room three weeks earlier, when we'd first heard, not that Griff was leaving, but that Griff had these serious problems with Brendan McCartney that he had only just um, asked to see me about and, and, and told me about. And um, I told Simon Garlick about it immediately, and we decided to talk to Murph and to Daniel janser um about it. And they, they came over, and they sat on my couch looking stunned and sort of, well, you know... We, I mean, we knew there were a few issues, but we didn't know it was anything like this. And but boy, if Griff feels like that, that's that's pretty serious. And I reflect on that. In the course of like what, three, four weeks, he had gone from, um, I'm shocked by this, and uh, ha- but haven't really noticed anything in particular, to like grabbing ownership of the problem and the issue and the challenge by the scruff of the neck and saying, I'm going to make this my mission to fix. Um, so it wasn't that I was surprised that he wanted to be captain. I was surprised, but in a really good way, at the way in which he was approaching the challenge.
0: Just with regards to the Brendan McCartney situation, obviously it's uh, pretty serious if the captain can't get on with the coach, but was it just him, or did the floodgates then open once Ryan Griffin had come out and said, I've got these issues, was then that followed by a litany of supporting evidence?
1: Yeah, there are a few players. Let, let, let me say this. I, I think that um, football does involve the suspension of disbelief um, amongst everyone. I think that in, in every club, there are probably a spectrum of players who feel various ways about coaches. And I think when the circumstances you know, bring the whole thing into that sort of florid public display like that, you, then anyone who's got any kind of grievance is going to um, use use the situation. But I think that um, Griff's rather dramatic um, announcement did um, did spur on, well, clearly did spur on a, a number of other players and a number of other issues, and and Brendan himself acknowledged acknowledged that, and he was, I think, decent enough to acknowledge, a couple of years later, that the club had actually made the right move in replacing him with with uh, Bevo, which was a generous thing to to Simon. It was obviously after the Premiership, um, uh, but you know, look, those those situations are are. Difficult, and it's hard to know what to do. You would certainly like to preside over an environment where, if a captain had those sort of issues, um, you got to hear about him <laughs> a little earlier than when he kind of it had reached such a such a stressful, difficult, and point of no return position for Ryan that that it obviously had. Um, you know, I I think it's fair to say that from the first time I knew about it, which was the morning after the best and fairest, it was done. You know, it was kind of irredeemable. And despite the best efforts of myself and Chris Grant and, and Macca, um, I, I it, it wasn't redeemable. I don't think and I think he would say this himself, I, I I don't think Griff ever wanted to be captain. And I think that Macca saw an opportunity uh in him, saw had a vision of what he might be able to achieve because of his on-field prowess, his ability to inspire with his deeds on the field, that probably misunderstood the essential shyness of his of his nature. I mean, I think captaincy of a club requires deeds on the field, but it also requires certain abilities to speak and represent um, and behave in a particular way uh, off the field. And I, I don't think Griff, certainly at that time, was particularly thrilled with those aspects of the job.
0: As you intimated before, if someone had to come along to you at that stage and said, well, you're going to win a flag in a couple of years' time, you probably would have been calling for the men in the white coats. But as it turns out, that's the path the football club took. So let's fast forward to September 2016. I spoke about this with Bob when he was in here a couple of weeks ago. The first final is in Perth. You've been flogged over in Perth two weeks before. First year of the bye comes in. You make five changes. Did you go over there thinking that you were going to beat the West Coast Eagles because they didn't think that you were going to beat them?
1: I listened to that podcast with Bob and, and heard him say that he was absolutely confident. I didn't share that confidence. Mm. I'd been in the rooms after the Geelong game where both uh, Jackson McRae and Tom Liberatore had suffered injuries. And um, I remember Gary Zimmerman, you know, one of our club doctors, saying to me about about Liver, uh, he's no chance to play for the rest of the season. But we're not going to tell him that because we want to really keep him focused and you know, for his rehab and his redevelopment uh, next next year. But you can write him off. And with Jackson, you know, like we ne- <laughs> truthfully, we need to go deep into September. So that was the mindset I took about those those two guys. And when I started to hear, and I think it was from Ben Graham that I first heard early in the week of the of the West Coast game that they were both going to be available to play, I was shocked. I think I actually re- called Bevo and said, "Is this right?" Um, no I didn't, sorry, I called Jake Landsberg the the other club doctor mm. and he said yeah it is uh, he said it's not just me but it's mainly me as club doctor he's, um, it, it was remarkable that those guys could, could come up and they both of course played spectacular games it, it was um, it's an intimidating environment Perth and uh, games started with you know, massive sort of Thunderdome type uh, support for the for the West Coast Eagles. But it was it was clear by quarter time that the players had a particular mindset about that that, that game. And I recall in particular the sort of intensity at the ball of Liam Picken and Tom Liberatore. And um, it was was remarkable. And I, I know, well, you remember that game, but there's a moment in the third quarter, I think, where uh, Jordan Ruffhead, uh grabs the ball, storms uh, towards the 50-metre line and boots it through. <laughs> from about 55 metres out to put us about four or five goals in front where emphatically the whole world needs to... look. You know, this is not just some aberration where the Bulldogs have got their nose in
0: front. They're going to win this game. So all of a sudden the Bulldogs could be an MCG final. Yeah. That will be fascinating. Lysett ran over the top of it. Dogs, another clearance from oh. a rough hit. Oh. Takes the mark, turns and goes from 50 and if the icing wasn't on the cake, it is now. Take a bow, Jordan Roughhead. Hit me
1: into that game 66 to 1 for the flag. Yeah. Um,
0: so I remember that night I was calling that game and we took a talk back caller and we were talking about what was going to happen in the finals. And a Bulldog supporter rang up and said, I reckon we can go all the way. And we're sitting in the box going, What's this bloke on? <laughs> and that was the attitude at the time. You, you couldn't even entertain that that was going to be the case. Yeah. And yet. A few short weeks later, there's one other aspect of Murph's podcast that I listened to, where
1: where he said we actually had aspirations the year before, and it's true. Like, it was remarkable to have a coach like like Bevo, and we'd lost that game to Adelaide. You might remember there's some controversy about um, Michael Talia and um, game plans, and yes, uh, all of all of that sort of thing. We navigated that as best we could. But one thing I remember about the post-2015 season. And and the reason that Bevo was, was, um, you know, so intense about, about that event and its aftermath is that he genuinely believed we were a chance to win the flag in 2015. And Adelaide played and lost to Hawthorne in the following week. And I swear (laughs) he had Hawthorne in his sights. I I, I reckon he believed we could get past them. Um, I think they went on to win it that year. Um, And, uh, he had been, of course, both as an amateur and in his AFL assistant coaching career, pretty much in the grand final every, every single year. It was just his expectation of himself. Um, so I guess in one sense it was no surprise that he, he went on and, and got us through those those four finals the
0: following year. Hope you're enjoying our chat with the Western Bulldogs president, Peter Gordon, and there's plenty more still to come on the other side of the break. On This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
2: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Hope you're enjoying our chat with the Western Bulldogs president, Peter Gordon, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. The local paper said keep the dream alive, well it's been a nightmare for the West Coast Eagles but the Western Bulldogs have been simply magnificent the Eagles bow out and the Dogs live to fight another day in the semi-finals I was spoken about the game in Perth. The game the week after, probably not a lot of people recollect, but the one after that people recollect, and and Murph spoke about it in history. You don't want to talk
1: about Liam Pickens three goals against 87, th- no, against Hawthorne in front of 87,000 people? Well, I do, Pete, but Marcus unfortunately
0: we're already three hours over in a one-hour <laughs> program. It's a bit like World of Sport in the old days. We used to be uh, half an hour late after 15 minutes of World of Sport. At least I'll get the Don Smallgoods. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Batocchi.
1: <laughs> the right. Batocchi hams.
0: Let's go to that preliminary final. That night, that famous night where there were twenty five thousand people in I think, and most of them were bulldogs. It, it was extraordinary. it was amazing. We had a um uh
1: promotion at the um at, at the club where um we gave them a, a voucher for a meal when they crossed the border uh, from from Bevo, which was kind of a nice gesture that the uh the club didn't get a lot of uh, positive feedback from them The number of people actually drove made the made the effort to drive up there as a family were extraordinary. I think Leon Cameron who was of course the giants coach for the um, for the night uh, tells a good story about walking out <laughs> and hearing the, the boos for his team, the home team, uh, and the cheers for us and, and saying to his assistant, what the hell is going on here? This is meant to be our home game. And uh, yeah, it's a fair testament to the Bulldog spirit, isn't it, that so many of us were prepared to make that trip.
0: And it went right down to the wire. It was the last seconds basically where it was decided and a mark 20 metres out from goal before the siren sounds and then the realisation sets in. I can truthfully say, Peter, I
1: still get nervous watching the replay of that yeah. game. I oh,
0: don't blame you. I
1: mean, it's, it, it, we've seen many great games, many great last quarters, many, many close games. But there was a sense there that there's not a single player on either team that was prepared to leave anything in the bank in relation to that. It was absolute desperation uh, on on both sides and people throwing mm. themselves at the ball and without any sort of fear or regard to their own safety and... Yeah, Two clubs, one an emerging club that had, had only just entered the, the competition and with expectations, and the Bulldog faithful, who, as you say, were the predominant part of the, the crowd who had been through seven or eight losing preliminary finals, never seen a grand final in their lifetime were on this uh, kind of mission, and it was down to the wire. Like, 97 was a close game where we'd, we'd sort of stumbled after being about five goals, um, in front, but that game was always close, and it was dead set level with three or four minutes to go, and there were spectacular um, things going going. You know, Clay Smith clash of bodies with Roy yeah. Griffin in that last um, in in turn late in the third quarter, leading to Caleb Daniel getting a goal that just dragged us back into into contention, and that incredible moment. I don't know if you remember it where uh, the ball spills free on, on our half-back line and Jason Johanneson grabs the ball, weaves through the pass. Yes. And all of a sudden, people look up the field and Marcus Bontempelli is by himself at centre-half forward. Mm-hmm. Um, gets the ball, runs in, one <laughs> bounce, and we draw level. Um, I mean, I was I was hiding in the change rooms with a couple of minutes to go when Billy Hector, our doorman, Bill and, and his father, Norm, have been dormant at the Bulldogs for the last 90 years in total. And... Um, um, And he he dragged me out to say, I know you're too scared to watch this, but Jackson McRae's got, um, marked and is kicking for goal. There's a minute left. So I'm always grateful to Billy that he dragged me out for that. But uh, it meant more to me, I think it's fair to say, without disparaging the following week. That game meant more to me than the following week because... In my lifetime of including, you know, what, 14, 15 years as, as president, but a lifetime of support, I'd never seen my team in the grand final. Grand final week is a week for other clubs. It's a week for the Collingwoods and the St Kilders and, and the Geelongs. And, and it, it, Bulldog people had become used to the idea that that's just a world that we don't belong to and that doesn't belong to us. So in those seconds after the final siren, to actually understand that that had come to an end, that whatever happened the following week, this week the Bulldogs were in the grand final was a, a moment that I just I just couldn't cope with. Like I, I was I was weeping in the change rooms. I was I was just um, emotional about it in a way that I'd never been about about footy, you know, before or since or almost about, about anything really. And I, I've come across a large number of Bulldog people who who feel the same way about it, thrilled by the premiership win but to actually have made it to the grand final. And, yeah, I remember that grand final week And I had a friend, I had a business partner who lives in LA, and he'd come out for the grand final. I decided to take the walk on the Friday, before, the day before the grand final, to see him. He was, he was staying at Crown. I walked down Bridge Road, and as I got to pass the MCG, I'd completely forgotten that there was some kind of grand final parade um, uh, type thing. And, and then all of a sudden, from everywhere, there's red, white, and blue people converging. By the time I got to see it on the TV screen, there's 200,000 people there. It was just a, it was just a it was just an amazing week, and I'm glad that Bulldog people got to experience that uh, in in their lifetime.
0: We are happy to welcome everybody else onto the bandwagon that week because it was one of those rare occasions where everybody, apart from the other team supporters, were Bulldog supporters that week and that day. Yeah,
1: you know, I talked to. Peggy O'Neill about this um, after 2018, but it, it it was it was what was amazing for me in the weeks and months afterwards are the number of people who came up to me. You know, for example, um, the launch of AFLW season for 2017 um, was in North Melbourne, and I was walking back into the city from that. I, I met someone who said, "Look, I just want you to know, my dad was a Bulldog supporter, um, and uh, and they just died," and I said, oh, "I'm really sorry to hear that." Um, so "No, no, no. I'm, I'm not telling you that because I want you to know, he died a happy man, because of, because of what happened. And there were so many people who who would, and I talked I talk to John Schultz about this too. With Marcus Bonds and Pally or Bevo, they want to talk about the game, or they want to get the autograph, or whatever. But with people like me or John Schultz, and I think with Peggy as well, people want to share their stories. They want to share their bulldog connection, and, and whether it's the the grandfather who died a year later, or whether it's the grandmother who died five years before, but who always dreamed of that day. There's something really profound about footy in the lives of people. Um, That, that some, that that moment after a 62 year drought, that it means something really special to them. And they want to be able to convey it to someone connected with the club who they think might share that kind of that sense of the importance of it and the the family nature of it and the cultural history part of it, I guess.
0: You win the flag. Did it cross your mind, how are we going to top this? How could anything ever be better than this? Because we all need motivation. We all need to have something to strive for. But when you achieve something like that, which is the equivalent, the football equivalent of climbing Everest, surely there's only one way you can go after that.
1: No, there's a number of ways you can go, I think.
0: Um, but yeah. it proved to be perhaps that – do you think it's fair comment to say that the attitude perhaps pervaded the playing group, that they had achieved the greatest thing they were ever going to achieve in their life and that was the reason for the drop away the next year? Would that be fair?
1: I don't know what's fair and what's not. I'm not
0: I'm not trying to be defensive. I'm not trying to duck, no. duck the question. I remember um,
1: finding finding an article and – showing it to my board and it was an article that said uh, Bulldogs have just won the flag and with the playing group that they've got, the profile, the youth, the opportunities, we can expect that this year we'll go back to back and maybe even the year after that. And I showed it to him. and said, when do you reckon that was written? And uh, you know, who's who's written that? And it was actually written, I think, in February 1955, uh, the year after we won won our, our first flag. And Historically, we look back on 1954 and think, well, we really stuffed the opportunity. And the club didn't go anywhere after that, and a lot of people yeah, after 2016 said, "Well, you know, we don't want to go that way." And I certainly felt that way. Um, we've had a couple of, um, you know, indifferent years on the field um, uh, since then, and there've been there've been a you know a lot of I guess there's been a bit of bad press about Premiership hangovers and 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 things like that. I tend to avoid that sort of talk myself, I think you do the best that you can. I think people react to it in, in different ways. I heard it said, I think even on this radio station, you know, that that, that um, from the president down, people are drinking their own bath water and uh, stuff like that. And I, I, I was uh, ironically amused by it because um, in the week that it was said, I had just got back from Mexico <laughs> where I'd gone to negotiate with Mission Foods, our major sponsor, um, a deal... To allow Mercedes Benz vans to um, uh, to come in and be our back sponsor, we were thrilled to get Mercedes Benz vans as a sponsor. I and mean, the idea for the Footscray Football Club being mm. um, having a partnership with a company as prestigious as Mercedes Benz vans was a was a real thing for us. But it was a few days of my time, and it was a you know it was a bit of it was a bit of arm twisting and 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 delicate negotiations, and um, you know uh, I was doing my job. A lot of people were doing doing their job. I think a, a, a lot of people did get overly focused on how much credit am I getting for the job, the role that I played, whatever their role uh, was. So I think I think there are, there are bits and pieces of that. I think that. Yeah, you know, it's also important to recognise we finished 7th at the end of the home and away season in 2016 and courtesy of a whole lot of things, some great medical management, some great contributions to the players, some extraordinary coaching and vision, some great leadership from Murph and from from Bevo, we had a magnificent September of, of 2016. We're only a couple of wins away from being in the identical position in 2017. Um, and, you know, it's been two years... Since then, so I, you know, I hope I you don't know, feel like I'm I'm ducking the question. I think these things are complex.
0: Well, I don't think there's a definitive answer to it, but yeah. it's good to get your take on it. Yeah. How often do you watch it back? Oh, it's been a long time now. Um, um,
1: no, I I, I I watched it. I've watched the last quarter of the preliminary final uh, a lot. Still get nervous when I watch it. Um, I loved. I, I think I watched uh, a fair few of the Liam Pickin highlight reels in the week that Liam announced his, his retirement because you know, I, I admire him so much as a person and a player, but in particular, in what really is an extraordinary last quarter of a grand final, his last quarter in that, in that grand final is extraordinary. There's that incredible passage of chaotic play um, where I think Shane Biggs blocks the ball about seven times in about... 30 seconds where eventually Jack McRae centers the ball. It ends up in Liam's hands and he, and he kicks that clutch goal. And there's another moment where, um, he takes a mark so reminiscent of his father, Bill. Do you remember it? Yeah. Um, I was
0: calling at the time. Okay. Yeah. I, well,
1: respectfully, I remember the Dennis committee. Oh yes. uh, Well, you wouldn't Picking from behind, picking from behind. Um, and you know, uh, we are, uh, you know, beyond saddened that, uh, Liam's career finishes on 198 games, but no one could uh, could imagine having a better highlight reel or a better contribution uh, to the club. I have hanging on my wall at uh, the office a picture of him, p- picture taken from behind as he kicked the winning goal. So I don't know if you remember that, but he's in a contest at the goal square. Wrong foot's the Sydney Swans guy who finishes on the ground, and he gets to run into the goal from the 10-metre square in front of him are the Bulldog faithful Mm -hmm. who have had two or three seconds to understand that he's running in to kick a goal from the goal line, which will nail the grand final and all of their arms are up and all of their smiles are of delight and their mouths are open. And I said at a presentation to him at the club, just a couple of um, uh, weeks ago that I, I, I love that photo both because it's an important part of his history, Bulldog history, grand final history, AFL history, but I love it. For another reason, and that's because it symbolises the impact that he had on Bulldog supporters and the club. As a consequence of 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 him, that's the reaction that, that supporters have. And every now and then you'll you'll get a bit of uh, football photography that'll capture a moment like like no other. That's a wonderful photograph.
0: Great to have you with us for this very special feature episode with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs president, on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, back with more after the break.
2: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Hope you're enjoying what is a fascinating chat with Peter Gordon, the Bulldogs president on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. For all of the reasons you've just so beautifully described, it seems impossible to think that you could have a moment that might even come close to matching that. But the AFLW premiership is something that is very dear to your heart.
1: Yeah, look, um, I have two daughters and... and the way that they now think about football is different because of um, because of AFLW. My daughter Maddie is making plans to to play with her team uh, next year. I've seen girls around the club really since I've um, uh, since I've, I've been a boy there myself really, but I think that they think about the game in a different way, and they aspire not just to be uh, people who watch, but people people who who play. I've seen girls like Bridie Garlick, Simon Garlick's um uh daughter who he says <laughs> was a much better um junior prospect than either of, his, of of his two boys but who used to say you know when when will it be dad that I'll have to give this game away because girls don't get to um play so I think it's been one of the one of the great really injustices of um uh of our sporting history that it's it's taken so long and I think we I'll say in particular as men but I think also as a, as a community have have misunderstood that there's been this really deep aspiration for women to be able to play the game I'm really thrilled by the way that it's improving uh in terms of uh quality we're seeing athletes now um who can kick longer uh, be more agile uh, take marks yeah, so some of the, the the vision of Taylor Harris both marking and kicking uh uh the ball you know is is Every bit as uh, as inspiring as uh, Alex Jesaulinco or, or Ted Whitten, <laughs> wrapped up in the one in in the one player. So I'm thrilled that we've taken a leadership role um, with that. I'm really um, I'm really hopeful for its future. It's going to have its ups and downs, of course. It's it's becoming a much more competitive environment. We've lost a few players in uh, uh, in the post season, both this year and last year. Of course, we lost uh, Emma Kearney, uh best and fairest winner. We look like losing Conti um this year as well. But you've kind of got to... When you're a leader in the competition, and the Bulldogs have been a leader in this space, you've got to suck it up. Because if you, if you believe in an AFLW uh, competition, then you've got to believe that it's got to expand to embrace more clubs and more of the community. And those clubs have to be competitive. And in a limited talent pool, it means that you've got to be prepared to have a system that shares that talent around. So what's exciting from our point of view is that as we lose those players... We have an opportunity from the vast number of young athletes who are now joining into the ranks and are available to be drafted. It's such a it's such a richer talent pool. So I'm looking forward to replacing the the, the women who are leaving with, with uh, uh, younger players who get their opportunity uh, as well. It's a it's a great time to be involved in footy.
0: Does part of the way that we appreciate the women's game, Pete, stem that people have to stop making comparisons between the men's game and the women's game and trying to say, well, someone jumps higher, someone runs faster, all that sort of thing. If you made that comparison, nobody had ever turned up to watch Shelley-Ann Fraser-Price, who was a brilliant sprinter because she doesn't run as fast as Usain Bolt, but she's the best that we have in her sphere. Is that what we need to do to differentiate between the men's and the women's games and not constantly compare? Look, I think first of all, it's a game for the players, and so
1: if, if players enjoy it, and uh, then you know that's that's an end in its in itself. And I, I think it, it's then in the eye of the beholder. I don't know a lot of tennis fans, for example, who really love the men's game but won't you know cross the street to watch a watch a women's game. But if if that's what floats their boat, then you know I, I don't seek to interfere uh, uh, with that. I love the women's game. Because it's a great spectacle and, and is improving as a spectacle um, all the time, but I also love it because uh, it's it's incredibly energising and inspiring. Really, to see a generation of women and girls who've never had the opportunity before, all of a sudden making a league of of, of their own, and, and and to actually be as a club now responsible for negotiating with players as they want to leave, and you know, you can you can get a little bit too focused on, you know, the, the ins and outs of those sort of negotiations like you do with the men players. The, the fact that it's actually reached that level of professionalism where people are concerned about their careers and sporting contracts and sponsorship contracts and all of that that, that sort of thing, every now and then you sort of just lean back and, and sort of say, you know what, That's that in itself is a landmark. It's getting to a level of professionalism where there's this sort of contention and and wheeling and dealing between clubs, uh, etc. So, you know, it... The right way to look at it, I think, is it's one more landmark in a competition that I think certainly for, you know, you think about Gil McLaughlin's tenure as CEO of, of, of the AFL. It's the standout achievement in, in, in an, an era like I think he's championed competitive balance, you know, great stadium deals, uh, growth in the competition, community footy. But women's football is something that he advanced, I think, at least five years um, ahead of where, where, where it was going. And um, it's had its challenges. You know, with so many teams wanting to come in, with so many existing teams want to pre- wanting to protect their fiefdom, um, with the need to sort of balance when it starts, because the Australian Open is itself so ubiquitous in January, and there's a need to protect it a little bit from, you know, there's a sort of hype that goes along with the start of the the men's season. I think it's grown in a spectacular way, and I'm um, I'm really I'm really happy. Uh, that during my tenure as, as president of the Bulldogs, I've, I've got to participate in that um, as well. So, you know, I've, I've got great memories of the men's premiership. I've got great memories of the women's premiership, a couple of VFL premierships. You know, I've had a good time with the Bulldogs.
0: Hope you're enjoying the chat with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs president. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, the Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
2: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Our final segment with Peter Gordon on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Where do we sit? in the expansion of the game? Because they say that if you're standing still, you're going backwards. Is there room for the game to expand? Well, look, I think that this is a really important question. And I, I was quoted
1: in the Herald Sun a few weeks ago as saying that I think there should be a team in Tasmania. And let me just go through a few um, ideas behind that, that idea. The AFL job is not just to make money. It's it's, it's In fact, it's a not-for-profit. It's, its essential core mission is to be a keeper of the code and a builder of the game. And, Tasmania has such a rich history in AFL football. You know, think of the Peter Hudson's and the Daryl Baldocks. and you know it's it's fine, it's good and it's appropriate to build into the northern markets in Queensland and New South Wales. I'm thoroughly behind that and support it um, um, as much as possible. But Tasmania, I, I think, um, has has the right from a cultural and a heritage point of view and from the point of view of best assisting the growth of community football at a local level. I've heard Jeff Kennett uh Talk about uh, the economic irrationality of of doing it. Let's just go over a few figures. If you if you know it, it probably costs to run a um, lower echelon economically AFL club probably costs forty to forty three million dollars a year, of which about half is AFL dividend figures. I think the AFL made an operating profit of above thirty million dollars um, that year. So if if they can't configure a way to get an extra dividend um, that that works across a nineteen uh, club, I'd be very, very surprised. That means that you, you take that out of the, the Tasmanian franchise, if I can use that economic term, needs to find about $20 million to make ends meet. There's already you know, several million dollars in major sponsorship that the state of Tasmania itself has demonstrated it is prepared to put in to to a club. One imagines if there was a Tasmanian uh, club, it would go to that Tasmanian club. Then you've got all of the... Um, Tasmanian corporates um, that are currently around, I think there are something like 90,000 people in Tasmania who are members of AFL, uh, AFL clubs. So when you look at the other revenue streams that support um, other clubs, whether they're corporate sponsorships, memberships, coteries, food and beverage for the home games, um, et cetera, and the other key revenue streams, I don't have any doubt that uh, that the Tasmanian economy could support a Tasmanian club i think that the argument that uh, that that it's it's economically irrational to think of a Tasmanian team is quite simply wrong and i think that when you look at other great competitions around the world you know major league baseball the nba you know they're quite comfortable with the idea of expanding uh, expanding and having you know, upwards of 25 26 30 teams uh, in the competition. So I start with the premise that I think that Tasmania has earned the right to a club. I don't think the only criterion should be does it make more money? But if it's a relevant criterion, then I think that there's a plausible case to say that it isn't going to cost money to the competition.
0: Where's the club based? That's the problem. That's one of the problems, isn't it? Because we know that the unofficial civil war goes on on the island yep. between north and south. Yep. Where do you base the club? I th- look, I think
1: those are matters for um, for Tasmanian uh, people, and that I I haven't entered into this debate because I presume to be um, a Tasmanian expert. I I am um, concerned to make the argument that because the only people who speak about this tend to say, well, of course it's ridiculous to suggest that Tasmania could ever afford or justify economically its own club. I think there's another argument that can be made there, and I've I've just tried to make it. I think as a matter of Um, fundamental policy, we need to understand that the AFL is not BHP. It's not there to return increased um, shareholder dividends every year. It's there to grow the game, to respect the game and to be keepers of the code. And there's an imperative in relation to that. I think it's a fair question. Um, And uh, I think the answer either is they're in Hobart or they're in Hobart and Launceston. Mm. Um, And I I choose to leave that to um, people who, I've no doubt that a Tasmanian team will come and uh, I think that that'll be one of the confronting questions that they'll need to to debate. A good thing is that there are already a couple of grounds.
0: The AFL have often stated that they don't want a buy. They don't want an odd number of teams in the competition. Is that, do you think, a realistic stumbling block? Can that be put up as a reason not to have a team in Tassie? Uh, No, I I, I don't. I think that a buy
1: increasingly ought to be considered a rotating buy as a... Uh, health and safety issue for uh, players. as a rehab issue for uh, players. I can't see any uh, problem. We already have eight-day breaks, ten-day breaks, um, elongated breaks, as well as uh, buys written into the program and a buy at the end of the season. Um, I just don't see it as a first magnitude issue.
0: Thanks for sharing your time with us today. Thanks for having me, Peter. I've enjoyed the time a lot. It's been a pleasure. Peter Gordon, joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives, We'll be back same time next week. Hope you can join us then.
2: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Backers together and loving it. TNCs apply.